Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places today where nobody else does. And if you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel. And dear, I can't tell you how excited I am about today's show. I know you are, dear. On today's World Footprints, we celebrate Veterans Day, take a trip to Hollywood, and explore Mayan civilization. First, in honor of America's veterans, humanitarian and Hollywood animal trainer, Clarissa Black stops by to talk about her concern for homeless animals and a desire to help American veterans led to the creation of the Pets for Vets Foundation that pairs homeless animals with veterans of war. Then big and small screen actor Don Diamant, best known for his role as Dollar Bill Spencer Jr. on the CBS daytime drama The Bold and the Beautiful, joins us to talk about his Hollywood life. But what you may not know is Don is a fighter in the battle to find a cure for multiple sclerosis, and he will discuss why he's so committed to this cause. Also, writer and Central American explorer Joshua Berman has encountered lost worlds, Mayan pyramids, and stories of an apocalypse. Joshua has written a new guide called Maya 2012, where he shares some of the Mayan places and explores the Mayan anticipation of the end of their calendar. And throughout today's show, celebrity fashion designer Christian Siriano, a Marylander making waves in New York, drawing the attention of fashionistas like Lady Gaga to Nicki Minaj, will share what inspires his style. You might remember Christian as the winner of the fourth season of the cable television reality show, Project Runway. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And I have to say, I got a sneak peek of Christian's Spring and Summer uh, collection, and it is awesome! So, there's also a Contact Us page on our website at worldfootprints.com, where you can connect with us if you want to follow us in real time, and like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. There are links to all of our social networks and a uh, sign-up for our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. Now sit back and relax and enjoy today's show. Larissa Black is an acclaimed animal trainer in the entertainment industry. She grew up around animals and even worked with elephants and dolphins before turning her attention to animal actors. A few years ago, Clarissa channeled her passion for animals and founded the Pets for Vets Foundation that pairs homeless animals with veterans of war. Clarissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to create Pets for Vets? You know, I was doing some therapy dog work with my dog, Bear, at the VA in Long Beach, and all the veterans there were petting on him, and their faces would light up, and I could just see some of their stress and tension melt away. They would start to ask me, hey, can I take your dog home with me? Obviously, I can't part with my dog, but it started me thinking, well, okay, what can I do for these guys to continue their therapy work outside the walls of the VA and knowing the plight of rescue animals? And hearing them say that, you know, all they want to hear is a thank you, 
um, it sort of evolved into what it is, Pets for Vets, and it's my way to say thank you and to be able to give back to the veterans who have given so much for our country. And when when did you uh, start Pets for Vets? It's been a couple of years now, yes? Yes. Um, we started at the end of 2008, but we placed our first dog in June of 2009. Okay. And are you still working with uh, animal actors? No, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay. I'm doing that so I could focus on, on pets for vets and spend more of my attention doing this. Okay. Well, you know, just, just for our audience sake, because we, you know, we are an animal-loving uh, radio show as well, uh, tell us some of the, the films or television shows where we would have seen some of your, your clients. You wouldn't have seen um, me necessarily, but the company that I worked for, um, the one that everybody knows is the Air Buddies film. Uh, oh, okay. little golden retrievers. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, next time we see that, we'll we'll certainly think of you. <laughs> now, um, kind of getting to some of the logistics. How do you pair vets with a respective pet? And and do you pair both dogs and cats, or work mostly with dogs? Uh, pets for vets will place any animal that is a legal animal in the area. However, so far we've only had requests for dogs. So we've only placed dogs. Um, how the process works is the, the veteran will get in contact us, with us, whether it's through our website, through Facebook, or through referrals through the VA. We'll do, um, they fill out an application, and we have an interview process. We'll go to the home, um, find out what it is that they're looking for in a dog. We'll also kind of ascertain what their personality is and their lifestyle, and then we want to match the best temperament dog to them, to the veteran specifically. So once we figure out what it is we're looking for in the dog, then we'll go out to the shelters or to the different rescue groups and evaluate dogs until we find the right match. And once we find the right match, then um, the dog will come home to the home of the trainer. They'll go through some basic manners training. That okay. can include um, everything up to the canine good citizenship level, as well as things if um, they need to become desensitized to wheelchairs, crutches, canes, prosthetics. Um, and we also become creative with behaviors to help with post-traumatic stress disorder. One of my uh, veterans, he was uncomfortable with people approaching from behind, so I taught his dog to sit behind him um, just to create a little bit of a bubble of space. And the current dog that I'm working with, um, we're doing a little bit of uh, nightmare training to teach her to wake him up when he's starting to have a nightmare. Mm. So, I mean, that's a nice a nice way to use a skill that you've you've built um, to build, you know, this new passion of yours. Yes, I've been very lucky that I get to work with animals as well as help um, while I'm doing something that I love. Now, um, what are some of the communities you you currently serve? I know you're based out on the West Coast, uh, but are you serving any communities in the East Coast, Midwest, South? Great question. So we started here in Southern California, um, but this year, um, due to we won the Pepsi Refresh Challenge, and we got a $50,000 grant, and we've been using that money to help us expand. We now have a chapter in Washington State, in Michigan, in Washington, D.C., and in Southern Florida. Oh, wow. Well, being a Michigan um, uh, resident, well, not a resident, but uh, Michigan is my home state, and of course we're, we're here in D.C., um, so I'm happy to know that. A couple of places certainly that, uh, that are very important to me that you're in the community. And, and so what are your, your growth plans, you know, for, for next year or the year before? I mean, eventually do you want to, to have a presence and chapters in, in each state? Is that your over, overall goal? 
yes, that is our goal is to have a chapter in every state so that any veteran who could benefit from having a companion animal is able to come to Pets for Vets and go through our program. Okay. And how many um, how many pets have you placed thus far? Here in um, we've done 15 um, in Washington State. They've just started and they've done two. The other chapters haven't placed any animals, but we're just on the verge of starting to place in Washington, D.C. We've been really trying to iron out the kinks. Um, what we really focus on is, is a quality program, not quantity. We don't just want to give a dog to a veteran and say, here, here you go, good luck. Um, we really want to make sure that the dog has gone through the training to fit into the veteran's home as well as the veteran knows what, um, how to work with their dog. We also provide a welcome package to them, which includes food, leashes, bowls, crates, toys, um, training equipment, anything that they need to start their life together. So we really do want to focus on the quality match versus the number of dogs that we're placing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it sounds like you do a little bit of um, vetting, no pun intended, um, of the, the pet, but are uh, some of the, the veterans uh, who request animals, are they, do they go through some kind of screening process to make sure that, you know, their home um, is, is suitable for, for yeah, a new pet? Right. They do. So we do the application process, the in-home interview. So we do check the, the home, but that's also to help give us an idea of what type of dog would be suitable in their home environment as well. Um, we really want to make sure that we're making the best match, not only for the veteran, but for the dog, and so that everybody um, is in a, in a good place and it is a lifelong match that is a stress-free match for, for both. Um, I had an interesting story, actually. I just received a letter from a veteran, and I was thinking about this because we're doing the nightmare training. Mm-hmm. I hadn't taught his dog anything about um, nightmares because it wasn't a concern he had expressed explicitly to me. But he sent me an email saying how wonderful they're doing, how she's fit right into his family. And the other day he had an, an episode. He had an attack while he was sleeping, um, and he had stopped breathing, having a nightmare, and he had stopped breathing, and she woke him up and helped him through it. So even though these dogs aren't, some of the behaviors are not being trained because of the bond that we're having. We're helping the veteran to develop, and because we're selecting um, a dog that fits them perfectly, mm-hmm. um, this is what we're seeing from them, things that we haven't even trained their dogs to do. Well, you know, I mean, animals are really intuitive uh, and, and, and very sensitive, too, particularly when that bond is, is created. Um, and, and, and that's a wonderful success story. Or, oh, and, and I can imagine you have you know several uh success stories based on you know the 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 placements that you've made can you share another one or two with us absolutely one of my favorite ones um was a gentleman who after five tours in iraq one in afghanistan and one in kuwait um was just very uncomfortable being outside in his surroundings, having people approach him from behind, constantly scanning, constantly thinking he was going to be under attack, even in his own complex, walking the area in his own complex. And um, he wasn't very outward with his emotions when I first met him, but after placing him with his dog, the next day he sent me this email telling me how the first night went. And I can tell you the emotion that I heard in this letter, it was more than I, I thought but possible. And he was telling me that for the first time in his life, he was comfortable walking through the complex alone, that he had, he said, I guess you could say we had our first therapy session. And I looked into his deep, soulful eyes. He came over to me, put his paw on my lap, <laughs> and I just told him everything that I'd been holding in, and we had our first therapy session. Oh, so he disappeared even after one day. Um, the difference that a companion dog can make. Mm, 
and and um, you know another thing I forgot to ask you that um, I would imagine that all of the pets that you place are mature pets and not uh, necessarily puppies. Correct. Um, we we do place um, usually adult dogs, usually about two years of age. Puppies can be stressful, um, you know, and they also do have more of a chance of being adopted from a shelter, whereas older dogs don't. Um, but we're also looking for dogs that we know we can, when we evaluate them, that temperament is, is solid and we can just work on some of the behavioral challenges. Um, so we are usually adopting about two years of age and older. Okay. Okay. And now that you're kind of growing uh, also across, uh, across the nation, what are some ways that our audience uh, can support your efforts? Whether there's a chapter in the in the area or not, if we have a chapter in the area, if you can volunteer, we would love to have you. You know, we always need um, people to help at events to raise awareness. If you're not in an area, again, raising awareness, let people know. Um, soon on our website, we'll have a little section with our brochure that you can print off, take to your local VAs to to pet stores. Just let them know what we're doing. Um, start drumming up attention, and we hopefully will be in the area because the more supporters we have. Um, that'll help us start new chapters in that area. Um, check us out on our Facebook and on our website. You'll see the different events and things that we have. And we also do have volunteer opportunities that you can do online. And we need walkers and people to sponsor our walkers and to just come out and have fun with us. And you can bring your dog and have a good time. And, of course, the website is petsforvets.org. Is that correct? Yes, it's actually pets-for-vets.org. Dot com or dot org. Okay, and of course we'll have a link to your website, Pets for Vets, on uh, the radio show of our website. So, uh, Clarissa Black, founder of Pets for Vets, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you really for the work that you're doing. It's you know you're uh, you're getting a double whammy. You're helping animals, uh, homeless animals, and, uh, and certainly uh, our veterans of war who really need the, the attention um, and comfort that a companion animal can give them. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and I appreciate the opportunity to share my passion about pets for vets. It's our pleasure. As we go to break, fashion designer Christian Siriano talks about the influences and inspirations for his fashion. My thing is how I get Turn actor and soap star Don Diamond on life in Hollywood and his efforts to find a cure for multiple sclerosis, MS. Whether it's uh, it's uh, um, you know, the MS Society or whether it's uh, specific. 
specific research centers and different research hospitals around the country. You know, make your uh, make your donations. Do what you can. As World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hey y'all, this is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. It rocks my socks. <laughs> I love it. You know, we're, I think, really focusing on the last Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Christian Siriano on what lies ahead for him. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Don Diamant is an extraordinary actor who has been seen on both the big and small screens. Most recognized for his role as Dollar Bill Spencer Jr. on the CBS daytime drama The Bold and the Beautiful. Don has also appeared in the film Anger Management with Jack Nicholson and Adam Sandler and Marco Polo opposite Jack Palance. Don made history when he was named in People's Magazine 50 Most Beautiful Issue and more recently in the 2009 Sexiest Man Alive issue. Don's resumes and his titles are very impressive, but the one title he treasures most is when he was named Ambassador of the Year by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society in recognition of his work and efforts to find a cure for this crippling disease. Don, welcome to World Footprint. Thank you. Good to be here. First, as somebody who has family members, uh, my sister and my cousin specifically, who are affected by multiple sclerosis, I I do thank you for your efforts. Uh, on on behalf of uh, you know research. Oh well, it, it's uh, it's my pleasure. You know what what whatever whatever little bit I can do, I'm, I'm uh, you know have been and continue to be happy to do. Now, uh, I understand that your niece Elisa was diagnosed with MS, and that prompted right. you to create the Don Diamant Elisa Mazur 
Foundation at UCLA's MS Research and Treatment Center. How is Elisa yeah. doing today? It's actually Elisa, and uh, and she's um, well. Uh, actually, right, most recently, she just finished her third round of a uh, chemotherapy protocol uh, because um, you know she was having some exacerbations and uh, some other treatments she's received have fallen short. So she had a, a wonderful response to that treatment, and, and right now she's doing quite well. She's able to, uh, uh, you know, drive and uh, uh, really uh, take care of herself. And, uh, you know, that over the years that has uh, at times been, uh, been quite a challenge. How old was she when she was diagnosed with MS? Well, I believe uh, she was... 16 when she was actually uh, when she was actually diagnosed. So there was some awareness, although it wasn't really determined to be MS. But at age 13, she was having black spotting, uh, black spots in front of her eyes, mm-hmm. and, and affecting her vision. Uh, I'm sorry, not in front of her, but she was seeing uh, black spots, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it wasn't really determined at that point that it was MS. But you know, not long after, it, it was. Can, can so you, she's, she's been a real inspiration because she has uh, she just got her master's degree, in fact, from uh, Cal State Northridge oh. in, uh, in sociology. So uh, that's been long road, and uh, she's been very tenacious. Uh, wonderful, a- absolutely wonderful, and uh, you know, and I and love the fact that uh, that that you know this hasn't stopped her. Uh, her progress and um, you know congrats major congrats to her can you talk a little bit about some of the research that UCLA is doing and some of the things that they may have uncovered or some of the progress they've made in, in the research well, I, know there are, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the the, uh, the the very most cutting edge most recent things that, that are coming out are but I do know that, that they you know are at the fourth at research and um, uh, there are some very promising drugs coming down uh, the pipeline, some hormone-related re- drug therapy that's, uh, that uh, I think will be unveiled uh, pretty, uh, pretty quickly. So um, that's, uh, you know, that's very promising. Mm-hmm. But uh, research requires money. And uh, so anybody out there listening, whether it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, the, the MS Society or whether it's uh, specific research centers at different research hospitals around the country, you know, make your, uh, make your donations. Well, that that's a great segue for me to ask you uh, your website and how people can support your foundation. Well, my as you said, it's the Don D. Montalissa Jill Mazur Foundation uh, at uh, at UCLA's MS Research and Treatment Center, and uh, I have raised myself uh, a few hundred thousand dollars, about three hundred thousand um, dollars. So I'm very uh, you know very proud of that, and. Uh, Anything and you know again, it's uh, it, it's terrific. Go ahead, can, you contribute to, to to my foundation, but but really uh, uh, making contributions to uh, any MS uh, research facility anywhere in the country is a, is a wonderful thing. Yeah, I you know this is this is a a disease as I've experienced in my own family that you know either kind of creeps up on you or really in the case of another family member smacks you dead in the face and inhibits your 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 mobility so well, well big time my niece has been at, at times in a wheelchair and unable to use her hands you know it's she's got progressive uh remitting MS and uh it has you know, taken its toll on her and she was an incredible athlete exceptional athlete and uh, yeah 
your, your, your observation is, of course, accurate. You've experienced it firsthand. It's a very debilitating illness. Well, I, uh, you know, thank you again for what you're doing. This is very important. But on a personal note, I received some questions from uh, our listeners who are interested in knowing more about you. But I would like to ask how a nice guy from New York ended up in L.A. A nice guy from New York? And, well, what, what, is it, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> 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 like, like, L.A. is a hedonism capital of the world? <laughs> no, well, no, that's why, that would be my, my town, Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> no, uh, well, did, well, did you always really, want to be an actor? I mean, did you did you uh, move? What brought me to, from L.A. to New York was my dad. He was uh, uh, given an executive position in the company that he was working with, and uh, uh, I was only three years old when we moved, so I did not have a lot of say in it. But I'm very glad for it, and <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's really how that how that came to pass. <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm sorry. I was a little kid. Okay, uh, but did you did you want to be an actor as, as a little kid? Being in that? No, no. It really well. You know, that's what I really realized. I mean, I, I didn't do plays in high school. I was into sports, and but I was always kind of a class clown. So I guess that was maybe some indication of of what was coming. And when I did end up falling falling into it, and that really was a result of falling into modeling as well and then I uh, you know an agent saw my picture a theatrical agent saw my picture of my modeling agency and asked about me and we had a meeting and uh, you know lo and behold I found that it was something that I really did have an affinity for and really uh, just really enjoyed tremendously and seeing that I had some modicum of, of talent for it um, so you know here here we are here we are years later <laughs> and you know, I created a new nickname for you, and I'll be able to, you know, I'll be happy to share the intellectual property rights for for this new nickname. But uh, Diamond Don, I thought would be a great nickname for yeah, you. Well, Diamond is Diamond. I know. Diamond, Diamond so. <laughs> but I was Diamond kind of Don, okay. Yeah, Diamond Don, but it's kind of playing off your Dollar Bill Spencer character she name. Got the bill. There you go. <laughs> That's such a great name. <laughs> I, little, did, little did anybody realize that that was going to take off in the way that it did. Uh, you know, one time I believe it was Don that called me Dollar Bill, and I said, you know, that's good. And I think I called Brad, and I said, that's really got to be written in a lot. we got to start using that. And sure enough, that moniker has really stuck. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very catchy. We've had the pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully after this interview, you know, Diamond Don will, will kind of uh, <laughs> take you to that next level, too. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> well, you're such a gem to talk to. So, but. There was an article, years, an article years ago, and it was titled A Diamond in the Rough. <laughs> so, That's geez, cute. Somebody might be somebody, somebody might be beating you to it there. <laughs> Going through through your bio and you know just doing some research uh, on you and there's a lot uh, you're you're there's a lot that we don't know about you there's a lot that that I haven't been able to find about you know your past uh, you know I knew you grew up in New York um, other some of your other interests although I know you like basketball which is great um, and you know we've had the pleasure of interviewing several of your your uh, fellow cast members and I noticed that um, most of the people that we've spoken to or have had some interaction with like Eileen Davidson or Sharon Case or even Sean Keenan these guys you know they have different different things in Sharon's case she's designing jewelry Eileen's writing books um, Sean does stand-up comedy but uh, so they yeah, you know I'm just a one-trick pony I'm just kind of an idiot oh no uh, I guess I'm a one <laughs> 
Well, you know, is that is is that uh, well? Would you would you call being an idiot uh, uh, part of your uh, enterprising uh, alter ego? Uh, <laughs> in other words, is Bill Spencer an idiot? <laughs> no, not Bill. Bill, Bill's you know, Bill, Bill's a complex and uh, uh, you know character, uh, but an idiot, no. Somewhat emotionally dysfunctional, yes. <laughs> yes. It, well, you know that 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 actually um, brings me to one of the uh, fan questions. Um, okay. and, and interesting, this came from a, a guy, um, Steve in Ashburn, Virginia. So, you know, to all the, the men out there listening, men do watch soap operas. And, uh, and actually, Steve is a huge fan of the CBS soaps. But his question is, what is the difference between Brad Carlton, who was your character on The Young and the Restless, and Bill Spencer? Wow, well, you know, that's really just a long answer to that. To, to that question, as we know, it turns out that Brad Carlton really had a, uh, you know, was leading a, leading a, a double life, as is what it turns out after 20 years of having been on the show, or 22 years or something, and in that last year and a half or a couple of years, we found out that, that Brad Carlton wasn't Brad Carlton at all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, they, they couldn't be more more different as, uh, as characters, and for me, to, after pl- I've played Brad for so long, and then getting the opportunity, opportunity to to play uh, a character like Bill, who was so different from uh, from Brad, at least the Brad we knew for most of the, the vast majority of time that I was on that I was on YNR, uh, has just been uh, just the best experience for me. And actually, I guess the Brad that that we found out uh, Brad to be was actually George Kaplan. That that. That Brad was more like Bill Spencer than the Brad that we knew of uh, you know, for about twenty years on the show. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so, one uh, of the that, that's, our, that, that's, become, that's become largely our job. Yeah, one, one of the things that I appreciate um, what it, you know, at least B and B is doing. I know Y and R has has. Uh, done this a few times, but particularly Bold and Beautiful, you know, as a socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle show, I love the fact that you guys are taking, using your platform um, to raise a, uh, awareness about social issues. Um, you know, uh, there's stuff- a long history of, of, you know, Brad's dad. There's a, Bill Bell always tackled social issues, current issues be it homelessness, be it AIDS, be it date rape, be it, you know, whatever it may be. Um, alcoholism. He, he, he was at the forefront of addressing those issues in daytime television, and uh, Brad continued that very valuable tradition. And it, he's done a wonderful, wonderful job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I and I think it works, and it, and it helps set you apart, um, you know, from a lot of the other shows that are running. Um, Nancy in Michigan wants to know if you prefer acting on daytime dramas or movie sets more. Do you have a preference? Well, I certainly pr- prefer the pace that we work at in in daytime. I mean, it is hurry up and wait when you're working in in, in films, and um, 
so yeah, I mean, in that regard, yes, I, I, I do like, and I, and I just like, I, I enjoy, because I'm a very family-oriented person, and working in daytime has really allowed me to be there for my, uh, for my children, and that's, you know, that is paramount to me, so I, I really enjoy being on a, uh, uh, being on a, on a, in a studio and, and going to work every day and, and, and not being on locations. And again, not working at the incredibly slow pace that you work at when, you, when you're doing films. Mm-hmm. And how old are your children? Well, let's see, where do I begin? <laughs> including, my, including my nephew, who we have raised since he was 12 when my sister had passed. He's 22, then the oldest son is 22, then 19, then 16, then 10, and twins are 8. Well, Five boys. So you, you, you're not, uh, you're not too close to being an empty nester yet. No, no, not, not at all. <laughs> not at all. So, you know, in terms of, of travels, and I, I assume when you travel, you're taking family vacations. Is there a special place uh, that... An army platoon. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So where do you take this whole this whole group when when you go? Is there a favorite place that you guys like to? Well, it depends. We went on a cruise last year. That was pretty fun. Uh, you know, we'll all be going to Europe together next year. We take you know some local uh, local trips. Mm-hmm. We have a little cabin up in Big Bear, so we go uh, you know, we go up there mostly in the winter. I, I miss that area. I'm a former Southern Cal girl myself, so. Right. Totally miss it. Is there um, is there a place that has offered you know a real transformative experience for you? Because you know sometimes when we travel to different places, we develop a special affinity for that place um, for whatever reason. But there's you know places will speak to you. Is there? Do you have a a, a place that does that for you? Well, I, you know, I, I've been going to Hawaii since I was a little kid, so I have an emotional connection to it, going there with my parents, and, and I really do love, uh, love the Hawaiian Islands. I just really think uh, you know, it's beautiful and peaceful and, and relaxing, and I think Paris is just a magnificently beautiful, uh, beautiful city. It's so charming, so romantic. I really enjoy uh, Paris as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. W- with or without the kids? <laughs> well, I, I guess, well, it's just obviously it's a different experience when you go with kids. Right. <laughs> yeah, just going with Cindy is one experience, and going with kids is another experience. So. And they're, they're both great, and they're both great in their own way, of course. <laughs> it's sort of the romantic part of it is, yeah, it's not so much for the kids. Yeah, yeah. So so what's next for you, Don? Do you have a, a movie in the works? Um a book or you know you guys yeah, are enterprising it is, football. it is it is football season <laughs> and uh, uh, Alex, my, my son Alexander is a quarterback at Venice High School out here my his his little brother my son Luca he's a quarterback for the Venice youth football team and Anton and Davis start flag football in uh, in a week or so so uh, once football season you know is getting close you know July on really mid-July on it's all football all the time in this house. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just working on the show, and that obviously keeps me very busy and uh, happy to be, to be working on the show. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I have going on right now, working and football season. There you go. There you go. You Being can... with my children, that's, that's, uh, that's Cindy's and my greatest, uh, you know, greatest love and greatest passion. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, you know, before uh, before we go, I wanted to wish you a happy early birthday. Where you and I are Thank only you. a thing, <laughs> we're only a few months apart, and you share a birthday with my hero, um, my late grandfather, who uh, I called Bompy. I couldn't say granddad or grandpa or whatever, but that's fitting. That's great. Bompy, yeah, but he was he's my hero, uh, and so I know uh, th- that your birthday has a very special uh, meaning for me. So happy early birthday, my dear. Oh, well, thank you. When did, when did you lose him? I, I lost my grandfather my second year of law school, um, 1997. Oh. Uh, so he wasn't oh. there to see me graduate, but... Um, but he, he's still with me. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, well, God bless him. I'm sure he's watching over you. Absolutely. And you know who one of his uh, most frequent uh, clients was, going back to uh, clients, um, uh, he, my, my grandfather owned a record store in Lansing, Michigan, and he was the most popular man in the city, and I was one of the most popular kids growing up. Uh, but Magic Johnson, uh, still to this day, he talks about my grandfather. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a little Magic Johns connection there because I used to work out at the same gym as Magic, and I played uh, basketball with him on many occasions. Ran five-on-five, played one-on-one a couple of times, and uh, uh, have uh, quite a bit of memorabilia signed by him. And So there's there's a connection. I bet you weren't expecting to, to hear that. I wasn't in it. You know, it's giving me goose pimples. So <laughs> when, when you when you, when you you see Magic, Next time, tell him that you um, you are now good friends with uh, Johnny Johnson's granddaughter. Okay, I'll do that. Don Diamant, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As we head to break, here's more from Christian Seriano on what he would like to see First Lady Michelle Obama wear from his collection. Yes, there's tons of things, of course. Um, I think that there is... We did a lot of really beautiful things in white crepe this season. Uh, we did some really chic, you know, beautiful blouses, um, pants, trousers, different um, these little kind of like A-line, really beautiful chic dresses. I think those would be beautiful on her. Um, there is, uh, there's a few gowns that we did that I think also would be amazing. We did this really beautiful chartreuse dress. It's quite simple from a distance, you know, very fitted body, you know, kind of tool, um, you know, A-line mermaid at the bottom, but up close it has a lot of draping detail, and I think that that would be nice because uh, it would photograph well and be beautiful on her, but and the color would be beautiful on her skin. So that's my kind of thing, but everything, let's send her the whole line. <laughs> <laughs> and on dressing famous celebrities like Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj. I have to say, like, everyone that I have dressed or really has been, like, special in their own way because they're all such you know, different types of women, such characters, um, you know, everyone from Gaga to Rihanna to Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, they're also different, but all kind of the same because they have this kind of character persona and they're interesting. And uh, so they've all been fun. I mean, we just dressed, uh, you know, even Taylor Swift, who's very different from Rihanna or Lady Gaga, but still she wanted to have this thinking of fantasy and this dream, like it was for her Wonderstruck campaign. And uh, you know, so things like that, it's, it's great to kind of, they're different, but they're kind of similar, and I think that that's the best kind of way for us. And trust me, we don't say yes to everyone. I mean, there's lots of people that wouldn't make sense for me and my friend, you know? Uh, so I think that that's important. And 
but everyone's fun. I mean, we even did a dress for Nicki Minaj, who's crazy, and, but it was fun. <laughs> and she looked, she looked great on stage, and it was really cool. So it's, like, very interesting how that's happened. We had a lot of musicians that, like, go down the line, which I don't know why, but, but that just happens, uh, which is nice. After the break, an exploration into Maya culture with Joshua Berman and some bold predictions for 2012 based on the Maya calendar. The date of December 21st, 2012 is written only once, and it's, it's, appeared, it's on Tortuguero Monument 6, which is in the basement of a museum in Veracruz, Mexico. As World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Hi, my name is Asutui Edisara. I am from Samoa and I really love the World Footprints Radio and I love this family that talk to me like friends to me. Uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a different type of platform just for anyone when you are able to show your kind of craft, um, you know, to a big audience, you know, in a, in a way you kind of, um, and I think that that's the original idea of what run, you know, what the show was. And I think there's a little, it's hard because there's so many different types of shows that aren't about a talent-based show. So it's, kind of are thrown into this mix of, oh, it is a reality-based show, but it has nothing to do with that at the beginning. I mean, I remember my the first three parts of auditioning for the show when I auditioned were only the clothes. I mean, we wouldn't even get through the door if you didn't have beautiful things. I mean, people were being asked to leave very quickly. So in that way, it's something that I don't think the world understands is that it really was based on clothing talent, at least for my season when I auditioned it was. Um, so I think in that way, it's kind of... Uh, why I think it was a great experience, and you know, obviously everyone on that show, you learn a lot. Um, but I do always say that afterward, you have to really like take it and move forward. You know, you can't rely on that for the next, you know, ten years of your life because it's it's it shouldn't be you know your ending moment. I mean, for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to do a collection, I'm going to move forward, and now it's been four years, and it's almost like it's an it is great. It was a great platform, but you have to move forward, or you're like stuck in this like world of of it's not really real. It is. It's great because you're showing your craft, but it isn't the real business in any way. You know, it just isn't. Um, 
trust me, the real business is much worse. <laughs> real customers are way worse. But we love them. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. That was fashion designer Christian Seriano discussing his experience on the reality show Project Runway, a show that he won in season four. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Joshua Behrman has been traveling, living, teaching, and leading trips in Central America since 1998, the year the Peace Corps sent him to Nicaragua. During his two and a half years there, he heard tales about lost worlds in Maya pyramids. And another story he encountered is what the Maya have been anticipating, the end of the long count, a 5,125-year cycle of the Maya calendar, which will occur on December 21, 2012. Some believe it will be a peaceful transition, while others warn it will be apocalyptic. Joshua has written a new guidebook called Maya 2012, published by Moon Travel Guides. So perhaps he can offer some insights into what will happen next year. Joshua, welcome. Thank you very much. You know, Hollywood has made a lot about uh, December 21st, 2012. And, of course, the apocalyptic angle is one that the industry is promoting because sensationalization, drama sells. Uh, however, your new book came around because of a Christmas party in Belize and, and not necessarily because of the, uh, the, the dramatic speculation that's going on. So there really has to be an interesting story behind this book. Do tell. There definitely is. Uh, when, when talking about about the Maya, um, it's it's very easy to lose sight of the Maya themselves and to lose their voice themselves. And that movie that came out in 2009 was kind of a big trigger that kind of launched this discussion of 2012 kind of out of the hands of the Maya and, and into the rest of the world where many interesting theories abound. But what happened at this Christmas party, and it was, it was up in western Belize, in the highlands of Belize, and I was updating my book, Moon Belize, uh, working on the ninth edition of that book, which meant that I was traveling to each of these jungle lodges along the banks of the Macaw River. And and the Western Belize is one of the prime uh, spots for the Maya, uh, both living Maya villages and also the ancient ruins. And I was at a party at the lodge at Chaw Creek, and I asked the owner, Lucy Fleming, I said, what are you planning for 2012? Uh, And this this was about a year ago. And she started telling me that they're going to reenact an ancient Maya village. The guests are going to wear Maya garb. They're going to have uh, Maya astrologers and astronomers on hand. They're going to erect a stella, you know, a big stone slab with everybody's name on it. They're going to do ceremonies. Um, they're going to take it, uh, use it as an excuse, really, to kind of um, celebrate Maya culture. And I thought, well, if she's doing that, she's planning this this far in advance. I wonder who else is, is planning uh similarly creative celebrations and I started asking around and this was last winter and sure enough I, I found that there there was enough being planned uh, to warrant a book that focused on the travel aspect of 2012. Mm-hmm. And you know your book Maya 2012 which is published by Moon Travel Guides as I mentioned is not really your typical travel guidebook. Uh, what what distinguishes it from I've others? Writing, I've been writing guidebooks uh, since 2001 is when I wrote the first comprehensive guidebook to Nicaragua, and I have four titles. 
Uh, you're right. Moon Maya 2012 is unlike any guidebook I've ever written. It's probably unlike any guidebook that uh, your listeners have read. It allowed me to, to really put a little bit more narrative travel in there. So each of the destination uh, chapters, and the destinations, it kind of breaks down the Mundo Maya, the Maya world, into uh, how you would tackle that. If you wanted to go visit the Mundo Maya in 2012, uh, here's how you would do it. Here's, where, here's some of the bases that make sense. So, so working on that, I, I definitely found that the that it, it was it was it was celebrating a cultural region uh, and celebrating a a space of time, the year 2012, and what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So my publisher really, my editor really, really encouraged me to kind of use this as a, as a way to uh, yeah to do something a little different. So we included a lot of regional things, a lot of nitty gritty too about how to go around, but also some of these narrative uh, travel passages, and then also I interviewed. Some of the top 2012 thinkers uh, in the world. So I'm not, I'm not an archaeologist or an anthropologist or a Mayanist in any sense. I'm, I'm just a travel writer. But I reached out to a lot of the top experts in these fields and I interviewed them about traveling in the Mundo Maya uh, as it related to their specific field, if they're a linguist or an epigrapher or an archaeologist. And, and is that so? Is that how you ended up um, identifying some of the entries in this book, and you know, uh, developing this book through these interviews with with experts? Absolutely, yeah. When I when I first started working on the book, I started reading up on it and kind of read the top books, and then I just contacted the authors of those books and and told them what I was doing. And there's hundreds of books out there. You go to any bookstore and you see 2012 titles, and they're scattered all over the place. Uh, but there were none about traveling there, about just the logistics, uh, and also the why, the what, and the and the how, and the and why you would go to the Mundo Maya in 2012. Mm-hmm. So during the course of your um, of your research, you know, you've lived in uh, Central America and throughout um, you know Latin countries for for a number of years. Was there anything that you uncovered that really surprised you, or even caused you? Um, Concerns you know, based on you know some of the the theories out there. Um, when we're talking about we're trying to keep it just you know centered on the Maya, uh, I, I wasn't really surprised. I was definitely when you when you look at the Maya and you start, especially when you start reading up on it, and you realize that the the real facts, the real history, uh, and the real understanding of their writing is way more fascinating than any of of these tangential theories that are spinning out there. And there are there are funny ones. There's one. I mean, uh, there's there's a group of people gathering in a town, a village in France right now, and they believe that they're the chosen people to be beamed up by extraterrestrials on December 21st, 2012. This is in the mountains in France. And are you've got these are serious. Think are the this yeah. is serious. Oh, okay. A New York Times article on this a few months ago. Uh, there's a, there's a theories that there will be a magnetic flares from the sun or asteroids or planet X or it lost city of Atlantis will rise. Uh, it was pretty easy to kind of uh, ignore that and stick to, to more of the facts and talk to the archaeologist and find out what, what really is happening what's, what, and what, why is this significant. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, looking, I think 
from the viewpoint of uh, of the average person, and and certainly from you know my viewpoint, having lived through in Washington D.C. of all places, an earthquake and a hurricane in one week, um, both which are incredibly rare. Um, and, you know, looking at all of the natural disasters that are occurring in, in places around the world that are in some ways unique uh, to those places, sometimes it's hard not to speculate that, you sure. know, we're preparing something is, is, is going to happen at, at some point uh, next year. Um, yeah. Well, what I tell people when they say what's going to happen, you know, on December 21st or, or in the year 2012 uh, the best answer that I found is it's already happening. You look around and, uh, you know, you hear Rigoberta Menchu, one of the top Maya leaders in the world, a Nobel Peace Laureate, uh, says in a film about 2012 that we're in this 40-year period of chaos and, and we will come out, you know, more enlightened beings, hopefully. Uh, but it's a, it's a chance for ancient and modern wisdoms to unite and east and west to unite and to kind of enter this a, a new epoch together and they, they, so that is a really there is really positive ways mm-hmm. to look at it how did the maya calculate this date how did this date come about so this date the date of december 21st 2012 is written only once and it's it's appear it's on tortuguero monument 6 which is in the basement of a museum in veracruz mexico off-limits to the public. Uh, but it is, scientists definitely agree that is the date they wrote down. And it is the end of this 5,000-year period. Now, the Maya created this during the Classic period, uh, a few hundred years after Christ. They kind of projected backward in time and forward in time to create this 5,000-year count, on top of which they laid their history. And they wrote down the rising of kings and battles and wars and births and dynasties were, were all written on their, on their um, stele and, and the stone carvings in the temples. And dates, and they wrote down a lot of dates, and they, they just, they're known as kind of the thinkers and the stargazers and the Greeks of, of the Americas. You know, they, they're known for teasing out uh, enormous numbers and, and really, really being into their, their math and their astronomy. So some think that the, the long count is just, was just an exercise in this. Yes, to, to record their history, but also to kind of play with time. And that December 21st, the actual day, that wasn't that important. It, it was more them kind of playing with, with these concepts. Mm. What are some of the, the best cities that a traveler can have an authentic and experiential opportunity to explore uh, the Mundo Mayo in a responsible way? I like to use the word experiential because that really is the most important thing to think of when we visit the Mundo Maya, especially in this year. It's to get in there and get out of your hotel and get out of your resort and really interact with people. And, and don't listen to me about 2012. Go down and talk with some of the 10 million uh, modern living Maya who are, who are down there you know, doing all kinds of jobs and, and roles. And uh, one of the best bases to explore that definitely is Merida, which is on the northwestern tip of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Uh, it's a four-hour ride from Cancun, so if there's cheaper flights to Cancun, you can do that and then get to Merida. Merida is just this gorgeous colonial city, really active nightlife, uh, and it's got these haciendas, these converted haciendas all surrounding it in the countryside that you can stay at also, and with access to some of the most stunning Maya sites in the world, uh, Ushmal, and uh, some caves as well. 
Um, and then, of course, Guatemala City also gives you access to sites in, in Copan and Honduras and to the western highlands of Guatemala. And then from Guatemala City, you can take a short flight up to Flores uh, to see Tikal. And Belize is so small, it doesn't matter where you go in Belize, you'll always have access to, uh, to archaeological sites and caves. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point out for listeners, um, as I'm going through your book, you do offer um, information on uh, in, in, in resources on um, tours and packages and, uh, you know, just tips on planning excursions uh, this, you know, during this time and, and, and beyond. For goodness sakes, you know, it's not just uh, it's one day in the history of our our world. Um, but there's, uh, you know, this the culture is a beautiful culture to explore it at is, any time. And it's going to be an entire year of celebrations, uh, celebrations and symposiums and speeches and ceremonies and retreats. And yes, uh, in the book, by destination, uh, and then I list all of the, the these really 2012 specific tours that are being offered next year, uh, both by really experienced Maya world specialists, tour guides, and, and expedition leaders, uh, and then also kind of a whole range. There's ones that are more spiritually uh, oriented, and uh, there's ones that are centered around chocolate and chocolate making, uh, which is really important to the to the Maya. Mm-hmm. There's tr- So I've got chocolate tours I found in every single country. So really a phenomenal smorgasbord of... Uh, of travel opportunities next year at a very auspicious time. And where uh, where do you think you'll be on December twenty first, twenty twelve? I I would want to. I'm hoping to bring my family somewhere in the Mundo Maya. Uh, hoping to somewhere relatively quiet. I want to try to avoid any any massive gatherings, uh, which which are bound to happen at some of the bigger sites, Chichen Itza, Palenque. So yeah, maybe maybe in Western Belize where it, where it began for me, maybe somewhere new that I haven't been yet because mm-hmm. there's still there's still quite a lot of ground for me to cover even in the Mundo Maya. And you know, you raise a, a, an interesting um, thought for me. You know, we talk a lot about sustainable practices, uh, sustainable tourism, responsible travel on this show, and. They, there will be uh, massive gatherings uh, throughout Central America. Is there anything being done to maintain the, the integrity of the Maya communities, its culture, and the environment during this, this time, during, you know, next year? It's a great question, and I, I hope so. Uh, you know, each government tourism board is part of the 2012 committee. So each, you know, from the top down, there's definitely some organization happening. Uh, and then there's also a lot of bottom-up things happening as well. So it'll be real interesting to see how it plays out in the different sites. And it, that was an easy thing to focus on for me. You know, that's that's I, I started out, like you said, as a Peace Corps volunteer and have done a lot of volunteering abroad and leading trips. And that's that's actually what has gotten me around the Mundo Maya is leading a lot of a lot of these delegations and uh, alternative break trips. Uh, so there are those opportunities. You know, you, you have to seek them sometimes. Um, and I, I try to list as many as I could, but you, you really are out there and you're in a village. Maybe it's a homestay even, and you're staying with people and just talking to them. Indeed, and we'd certainly have to have you back on the show again to talk about your Peace Corps uh, experiences, because that, uh, 
that's a dream that I let go of, and uh, and so I always uh, welcome the opportunity to uh, learn from and, and, and live vicariously through uh, Peace Corps, former Peace Corps volunteers. But thank you so much, uh, Joshua Behrman, author of Maya 2012, published by Moon Travel Guides. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tanya. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and we look forward to sharing our travels with you and to connecting with you throughout all of our social networks and in multiple platforms. So make sure you visit us at worldfootprints.com to listen to our past shows, sign up for our newsletter, and view the daily travel deals. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.